Hello, everyone, and welcome to JOY, a podcast from St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. This is a conversation between Jesus, others, and you. The joy is in the relationships. I am the Reverend Mary Vano, and today I get to welcome Dr. Chelsea Wakefield back. Dr. Wakefield is the director of the Couples Center at UAMS. She's a psychotherapist and couples counselor. She's an author and an educator. In last week's podcast, Dr. Wakefield and I discussed marriages in the midst of this pandemic, and she's back so that we can go a little deeper and a little broader. Today, we're going to talk about developing more advanced relationship skills, and in particular, deep listening. Chelsea, I'm not sure how to do that. I don't know if I can listen deeply or not, but it sounds wonderful. Can you tell us more about what it means to listen deeply? When we are listening deeply, we are listening beyond the words. We're listening into the feelings underneath the words, the needs underneath the words, and we're employing another really important relationship skill, which is curiosity staying interested in finding out who is that person over there that I live with, that I've committed my life to, what is going on in their inner world. So there's a woman by the name of Hetty Schleffer, and she has a podcast that is so beautiful. And she has this metaphor in it about crossing the bridge. And so when we're talking about deep listening, what we're really talking about is leaving our inner orientation, the way we think things, the way we believe things, see things, our experiences, our history, and crossing the bridge into the other person's world and looking out of their eyes and through their experience so that we can really come to understand them from over there. And that is a difficult relationship skill to develop in an intimate relationship where so much is at stake. And oftentimes when someone is communicating with us, it's evoking some sort of defensiveness or the need to counter complain or, or do something of that sort. And it becomes very hard for us to do deep listening. You know, in our last conversation, we recognized the increased vulnerability that we're experiencing right now. And it seems like just at the moment when we're forced into greater isolation, we're also realizing just how important our community is. We're all linked and we need healthy relationships to thrive and maybe especially healthy relationship with our most intimate partner. I think we're talking about marriage here, but there are other relationships also where this deep listening might apply. Parent and child relationships, important friendships, coworkers, neighbors, et cetera. They're all important. That is so true. And so to talk about that for a couple of minutes, over the years, I've done a lot of parent-child reparations, reconnecting relationships that have become broken. And there's been perhaps a long separation where no one's been speaking to each other. And one of the things that I emphasize to the person who really wants to make the reparation is that they need to allow the other person to get all the clogs out of the pipeline first. So I work with them to help them learn to not internalize or take personally some of the accusations or blame or shame or things that they would say, that didn't happen. No, no, that's wrong. That's wrong. Or you shouldn't feel that way. Or this is your problem, not mine. All the kinds of things that we might set up to protect ourselves from what we might perceive as someone's poor communication skills or attack, et cetera. And in this time, 
when people's anxiety is so high, many people are not on their best behavior in terms of how they're communicating. They're having little meltdowns and they're just not in their best selves. And so the idea that I think we talked about this last time to kind of have a, an allotment of mercy for our bad moments, but to really try our best to listen underneath a rampage or an outburst or a meltdown and try to get at what the need is underneath that especially with an intimate partner. I mean, I'll just use my own relationship, for example. There are days in the midst of all of this that I start to feel trapped. We haven't been on vacation for a long time. I've spent a lot of time in the house. We don't go out with friends. I just feel confined and trapped. And I start to feel restless and edgy. What Tom will do, because he knows me and understands me, if I start to get irritable, he will say, we need to get in the car and go take a drive. And so that might not have occurred to me in the midst of my irritation, but he's noted that my state has shifted and he knows that helps me to maybe drive down to the river and just sit by the river or do something of that just to get out. Now, people have different things that they do that will be comforting for them. But the idea is that he listens underneath the irritation that I might be demonstrating. And here's the need understands what's going on in the understream and responds to that. Now, that's difficult when people are highly anxious and if they've got a backload of resentments or bitterness or unmet needs, and they're in a loop where they haven't been communicating very well with each other for years. And sometimes what that looks like is what I call is the no-fly zone. A couple will develop a list of topics they cannot talk about without going up in flames. And that can get to be a very silent household. Here's a couple of things to think about in terms, just some guidelines. I think having a communication practice as part of being home, where we just literally sit down and practice talking to each other is a really good idea. And it's a time, the context of that is to be in a learning conversation. That is the major focus, to be in a learning conversation and to share from our inner world, staying in reporting from over here. This is what I'm going through. And to really try to stay away from any you communications. It would be helpful if you would just, you're being this. I recall, this is all about how you, you, you. And if you would just all of that stuff and just stay over here on my side of the world and talk about how you can name emotions. I feel sad. I feel lonely. I feel angry. I feel bitter. I feel whatever. And the other person is practicing listening deeply and thinking to themselves, what does this person need in this moment? So rather than internalizing it and perhaps counter complaining and saying, well, you know, the only reason I did that is because you did this. And now we're in a tennis match where, you know, we're just batting the ball back and forth. You did this and that, well, you did this. And if you didn't do this, I wouldn't do this. And those conversations go nowhere. And what we really need to spin that around and get the focus on two things. Number one, compassion, learning a little bit more about the history of this person over there. Why does this matter so much? What is it touching into? What is the need? And self-compassion, which is so important, which means that I am realizing in this moment, I'm not in my best behavior, which for me often evokes a lot of self-criticism because I'm supposed to know better. I do this work. I teach this mm -hmm. stuff. I'm supposed to know better. So I would tend to fall into a lot of self-recrimination and I try to practice self-compassion, which means that I'm being kind. I am allowing myself to be human, but I'm also trying to be mindful. And in those moments of practicing compassion and self-compassion, which are both spiritual dimensions, really, 
then we can kind of unwind from the defensiveness and start to take responsibility for reporting from over here and wanting to know as you report from over there, what's going on with you over there. And then not taking it personally, which is something that is a lifelong practice for us. The whole idea that your reaction is about you is sometimes used by people to dismiss others. This is your problem. You're having a problem with me, but it's your problem. That's a dismissal because there's no seeking to understand whatever our behavior or the situation is touching into in that other person and why it matters. What is the history? What are the associations? There's no connection going on in that. And it's a defense against feeling overwhelmed by the other person's emotional state or feeling helpless that we can't help them or change them. We run into that so often. Mm-hmm. People who feel they can't help, so they just disconnect. Those are some initial thoughts of not taking it personally, of listening underneath the feelings into the words or into the needs rather, beyond the words into the needs, speaking from over here and taking responsibility for my experience, but not going into a blaming and shaming mode. And just really noting that emotions matter. They may be based on misconceptions, misunderstandings, oversensitivity, et cetera, et cetera, but they matter. Emotions matter. hear you suggesting that perhaps this deep listening is both a listening to oneself and to the other. So if I'm going to speak about my world, I need to be willing to look at my world, which requires sort of an aerial view. I've got to step out of it long enough to go, okay, what's going on with me? And then to be able to express that to the other. And then I've got to apply that same curiosity to what does this other need? What does this partner need? What are they experiencing? That is deep listening. Over the course of my ministry, I've done some study on the family systems theory. And one of my takeaways from that study has been that I really can't work to fix other people with Mm -hmm. whom I'm in a relationship. Not surprisingly, most people don't respond very well to being fixed by someone else. (laughs) The only person I can really work on is myself. So for example, if I want better communications with my spouse, it's usually not going to be from me telling Stephen, I need you to communicate better. It's more going to be me working on my own communication skills. And according to family systems theory, anyway, when I do better, when I kind of raise my own level of relationship and communication and other things, it's more likely that others will also rise to that level of relationship that I'm offering. So when we're working on our relationships, the first thing we've got to do is work on ourselves. I call that begin within. Begin within. I like that. Begin within. Now, you were telling me earlier about moving toward a growth context. How does a relationship evolve in such a way that we get to a place of growth? It really is a context or a focus or an intention. And most people get together initially. They find each other out of what I call a completion story. And that means that we grow up with a set of unmet needs or maybe with 
experiences that we want to replicate in our married life. And we choose a partner that fits into that completion story. And sometimes the completion story is you are difficult the same way that my mother or father was difficult, but in marrying you, I'm going to redo this and have it turn out differently. That often does not work. And then that person struggles a lot to try to get the story to turn out differently. But again, even in those stories, if we look in and we begin to work with ourselves, I think that every time we get annoyed or irritated, it is actually an invitation to do some inner work. And, you know, the question is, what nerve in me is this touching into? Can I spend a little bit of time in the felt sense of that? Because these things are often stored in the body. They're not necessarily thoughts that we have. They're sensations that we experience. And I would invite anyone the next time you get annoyed, notice where you feel that in your body. And a really powerful thing to do is to track the sensation and to think to yourself, this sensation I'm feeling right now in my hurt or my annoyance, what other times have I felt this sensation in my life, particularly in my little years? And you can come up with some interesting memories by tracking sensations rather than thinking through the memory banks of when do I remember feeling like this. And you'll come up with some interesting memories of times when that sensation is absolutely the same as a sensation in the present time. And just getting some insights into the nesting dolls that live in you, the little person that is still living in your neural networks, essentially, but metaphorically, it's kind of like Russian nesting dolls, you know, Mm -hmm. every age we've ever been. And just learning a little bit about what did she need? What did little Chelsea need? What did little Mary need? And how is that need still carried in me, a need and a longing that I'm assigning to my partner to be different, where it's something that I need to just attend more to how that need can be met in a variety of ways. We get very stuck in forms. It has to come through this way. We even do that when we're treating sexuality as a way of getting an affirmation need met or a connection need met. You know, it's like I'm an attractive person need met. It's not so much about the sex, it's about the affirmation. But if we never feel worthwhile, it doesn't matter how much sex we have, we'll never really feel whole. We'll never really feel affirmed. And we'll just need more and more and more and complain more and more and more about how I'm not getting enough sex or whatever. I notice that a lot with couples where somebody is seeking affirmation or connection and the complaint is about the sexuality. But even with the increase about that, they don't feel more connected because for some reason it's hard for them to take the connection in or, you know, it's really about the connection, which doesn't mean that it's not a good goal to have a good sex life. Those things can get very confused in terms of the way we communicate our needs to each other. So need meeting is one layer of relationship. Role mates is the second layer of relationship where we've got a common goal. We're building a life together. We're having these children. We're paying a mortgage. We may be activity mates. Sometimes I call that one of the problems today in COVID is if people were activity mates and they can no longer do their activities, they can be in big trouble because they're sitting around the house looking at each other thinking, what do we talk about? Who are you? Why are we here? (laughs) That's an opportunity to get into one of these learning conversations and go a little deeper into each other. Going deeper into a partner can be frightening because you sometimes discover things about them that you didn't know that are quite different from you in the way they think or feel about things. But again, if we can stay in curiosity and just stay learning, seeking to understand over in that person's world, not what we're making it mean, but over there, 
then what happens is a shift, the systemic, what you were talking about in the space between us. And that person, if we can actually listen deeply, will feel safer. And as they feel safer, they'll relax. And that relaxation in the system, in the space between us, will lead them into a different kind of communication and create a different kind of connection between us. for us to work with an example. My observation is that one conflict that spouses and families are having right now is about COVID safety. We all seem to have like this range of what feels safe right now and what doesn't. Some people are more comfortable taking some risks and some people are less comfortable taking risks. And when couples or family members don't have the same comfort level, then that ends up creating some conflict. You've talked about moving from sort of a needs mindset to maybe then a role mindset, and then ultimately, hopefully, to a growth context. It's really interesting that you'd bring this up because it's been a topic in some of my sessions. And I'm thinking about a couple that had some very different perspectives on safety. So that the real issues underneath the arguments about whether or not this person was wearing a mask outside the house and whether or not they were washing their hands sufficiently or practicing social distancing sufficiently had to do with the vulnerability of one of the partners in imagining the loss of that other person. And the other person thought it was about control. So the angry spouse, who was like, quit micromanaging me, was upset about, it was touching into them, their sensitivity about being controlled. And so that's a whole realm of what's the history around you feeling controlled, particularly in your family of origin or, or in life or, or anybody. Do you have an inner rebel that says, I'm not going to follow this. I'm going to do what I want. You know, hands on hips. You are not the boss of me, which is something that little kids say to each other. You know, that other person in their inner cast of characters might have a really pronounced inner rebel. And this person over here is sounding parental. Are you staying six feet away? Are you wearing your mask? Did you wash your hands? Those kinds of things. So now they're in a power struggle between the parent and the rebel. And taking it down underneath that, what helped them was for the person who sounded parental to talk about imagining the loss of that person and how deeply they cared for them, and how unimaginable that would be, and how much anxiety and sadness and fear it evoked in them to imagine not being with that person. And when they went from this kind of lecturing mode into the vulnerability, the rebel started to calm down. I mentioned this is not so much about compliance, it's about compassion compassion for this person's vulnerability. And in being able to listen to it through the lens of vulnerability, rather than this person's trying to control me, this other person's rebel started to calm down. And then they began to give some more information about how they really were taking precautions, which they were refusing to do just out of rebellion. And it changed the whole tenor of the relationship. I think that control issues are way, way, way up 
And it helps for a couple to actually talk about their vulnerability rather than to struggle with who's going to win in this situation. The softening helps. Because when we can be vulnerable, I think what we're doing is we're exercising that compassion. We're exposing our soft side so that the other can hopefully show some compassion. As we get softer like that, we're also going to be able to reciprocate some compassion. Is that the growth context that you're talking about? We're curious about what's going on with the other. And being curious, we're willing to accept what they're experiencing and work with them from where they are. Part of the growth would be the growth in wanting to learn, the Mm -hmm. growth of relinquishing control. There's actually a great deal of research. John Gottman has done a lot of research on successful couples. And one of the aspects of a successful couple is that they both allow the other to influence them. So they're not in a state of constant rebellion where they're saying, you are not the boss of me. And they're both allowing influence. I see this also a lot in in parenting. It's like one of them will become the permissive parent and the other will become the punishing parent. And the more punishing this one gets, the more permissive this one gets so that they can kind of compensate for how mean the other one is. And this one gets stricter because there's too much permissiveness and it just ends up to be a big mess. Whereas what they're both trying to achieve is a high functioning, successful, safe child that's going to be able to be launched into the world. So looking at our need to control, part of the growth is what is this need to control about? in terms of our vulnerability, in terms of our power struggle that we're in. When a couple can move out of a power struggle into a cooperation, that is highly transformative, no longer resisting each other. The other day, Tom and I had a conversation with each other that I think is a good model. We said, I don't like the way we were talking to each other yesterday. We said this at one point. And then we went into a exploratory conversation about (laughs) what was hard for you about the way I was talking to you? What would be more helpful? And the what would be more helpful is a really great question. In other words, if I feel like you're not remembering to take your mask when you go outside and it makes me so anxious and you've dropped your rebellion, now it's just absent-mindedness. What would be the best way for me to ask you to do so, so that it wouldn't evoke defensiveness on your part, so that you wouldn't feel controlled? Help me out. What could I say? What could I do? So just asking someone what would be more helpful, how do you want to be approached about this? And what you're suggesting is we've got to be willing to learn (laughs) along the way. I can speak for myself that I have a tendency to be a little bit rigid, to think that I'm right about things. Ask my husband about what I think is the right way to do the laundry. (laughs) He can tell you that I'm convinced that there's a right way. (laughs) As I mature, I think that part of my growth experience is that I can get pretty uncomfortable when I think that I'm wrong. You know, if somebody challenges me to say that I'm wrong, That's hard for me because I'm very self-critical anyway. But what frees me is when I'm willing to realize that maybe I'm not wrong about something, but maybe there's more than one right. Somebody else has something valuable to contribute. Or even that the cost of a little ruined laundry is (laughs) (laughs) less expensive than a negative variable. Yes. Just being able to recognize that, yes, as you say, that maybe some things are not all that important. There's maybe more than one right way. 
These are the cutting edge of the growth. Yes. <laughs> and gosh, wouldn't our society look better if we could all grow a little bit in this way? I mean, right now, so we're recording this a couple of days after the election. Still, it's very clear that we are living in a very divided context. Wouldn't it be wonderful if part of the conversation could be, how are we being invited to grow? How are we being invited to grow? Because I've got to wonder, how do we get beyond this division in our society? How can we move forward to work on solutions? Gosh, I think that part of the answer is probably going to be something about listening to each other. (laughs) You know, deep listening would help a lot. Because it is my belief that, I mean, we have some very different perspectives on some things, but if we were to burrow down underneath the concerns into what the ultimate goals are, our common humanity is still there. We're just lost in the weeds of a lot of areas that were stuck, entangled. We're not really looking at questions like, what kind of a society do we want to live in, in this family of humanity in the United States? What kinds of relationships do we want to have? How can we all feel safe and provided for for our our minimum needs? And also in terms of shadow work, which is a whole new topic, I had this conversation with a friend of mine a couple of years ago for a particular political figure that I won't name. But the question was, if you could boil that person down into a homeopathic tincture and take three homeopathic drops of that person's essence, how would your life be better? What occurs to me sometimes is that maybe what I would do is I would make up stuff that didn't have any factual base and really assert (laughs) myself into that position, you know, and just like commit to it and not worry about whether there was research. And I thought, well, that would be a really interesting way to live or not be so self-sacrificial that sometimes I get to a place I'm thinking about somebody, again, I worked with in the last couple of weeks who... I think that everybody that has a graduate degree probably has a dimension called unrelenting standards. It's actually a dimension on a personality assessment. Mm. And whenever I give people this instrument, that is always way, way elevated. So you have it, I have it, many of the people I work with have it. Every once in a while, we just need to leave the floor unmopped and the clothes unfolded and just go to bed and read a book or go to sleep early or just go sit outside and listen to the crickets, which has gotten a little too cold for that now. Helen Sidra Stone, who were two of my wonderful teachers, used to talk about the inner pusher, this striver, this push, 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 go, achieve, achieve, achieve. And we do that in relationships too. Sometimes people are so focused on, we have to make our relationship the ultimate relationship that they can't rest in the goodness. previous conversations, Chelsea, you talked about choosing to think in tighter timeframes. Do you remember this? That I think you were saying that this was a tool for maybe more productive thinking or living, that we just take things moment by moment and day by day, kind of a one year at a time strategy. I think that's important in this time. I'm going to do a retreat in January where I'm going to have people do some big picture, small picture work but more about intentions rather than goals. I mean, there can be some goals, but questions about who do I want to be? 
rather than what do I want to do? So to be in a tighter time frame, in terms of the big time frame, I think there's a life, you know, there's five-year, 10-year lifetime goals. Then there's eternity. And if we think about the really big picture, the things that we're just striving for in the one-year context or the one-day context start to look a little bit different. There's a lot of wisdom in the 12-step programs when they talk about one day at a time. And sometimes we have to do five minutes at a time or an hour at a time because we're heading into some further difficulties, regardless of who ends up in the White House, that have to do with illness and economics and things of that sort. So we're going to need to shift away from the kinds of goals that can be measured by our bank account. Certainly having a goal of food in the cupboard is a pretty important goal for many people. And we need to all be thinking about that, that people have food in the cupboard. It's kind of like in this day, who do I want to be? How do I set my center? When I was a child, I grew up singing a particular hymn based on a prayer in my daily chapel at school. Some of you will know this day by day, dear Lord of thee, three things I pray to see thee more clearly, love thee more dearly and follow thee more nearly day by day. In my daily prayers, I've identified, and this evolves, but I have identified who I want to be. And so in my prayer each morning, I pray for God to help me be that person. And then sometimes I forget most days. <laughs> I forget as the day goes on, but each day I'm grounded in this idea that, you know, I want to be a loving spouse to Stephen and I want to be a supportive parent to my children. And I hope to be a persevering priest for this church. So when I am going about my day, those ideas shape the way I choose to engage with others, I hope. It's interesting that you talk about that particular song, because I was just recently writing about how when we listen deeply and seek to understand and drop our projections, we can actually see our spouses more clearly and love them more dearly, day by day. It's hard for me not to sing to our audience when I <laughs> <to> spare them. <laughs> One of the unique things about the Christian faith that I love is our understanding of God as Trinity, which is a paradox. It's a hard thing to think about and teach about, but it is what Christians believe, that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. As difficult a concept as that is, if we allow ourselves to sit with that mystery, what we see is that we are claiming that God exists in relationship. We believe that God is love. And to make that claim is to say that God needs others. Love needs others. We can't have love without a relationship. So in the Trinity, each is unique. Each has its role to play, but they are engaged in this eternal dance. And where I really love Trinitarian theology is where we start to talk about how God as Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, Creator, Redeemer, Sustainer is constantly moving and inviting us every day day by day, into this relationship. I think relationship is at the heart of our faith. If we were to translate that into relational terms, we can talk about the creativity of co-creating a relationship and asking the divine to help us in the definition of that co-creation. And the redemption means the repairs that we make where we fall down and get up and we have mercy on each other in terms of the fact that we're human 
and the sustaining practices that we can engage in that really do sustain an enduring relationship, which are things like compassion, curiosity, communication, commitment, creativity. So the growth context is what we're aiming for. We're not done learning. We're never done learning, but I think that maybe our joy is complete for today. Before we go, I want to remind our listeners about your website, chelseawakefield.com. In the description for this podcast, I will also put the phone number for the couple center at UAMS. If anybody would like to do some work with Chelsea, you'll have that resource. And Chelsea, I want to thank you for joining me for not just one, but for two conversations. It's been a real treat. Thanks for inviting me. I think we can all benefit from learning to have better, healthier relationships and deeper listening. Thanks again to all of our listeners. And before we go, again, I also want to invite all of you who are listening to send me some questions. I'm getting ready to do another Q&A episode. And so specifically this time around, the seasons of Advent and Christmas are coming up. And if you have questions on your mind, if you'd like to learn something more about that season, please email me. My email address is mvano at stmargaretschurch.org. Please do listen again next time. And remember that our J-O-Y is not complete without you. This is a production of St. Margaret's Episcopal Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. Thanks to Stephen Bano, who composed and performed our theme music, and to Heidi Soule, our producer. <music>